Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, she has either won or been nominated for every major acting award that there is. I am so honored to have the legend Barbara Barry on the podcast. A-OK. My guest today is the award-winning actress Barbara Barry. Ms. Barry has had a distinguished career in film, television, and theater. On Broadway, she appeared in the original production of Company, for which she was Tony Award nominated. She was also in The Selling of the President, The Prisoner of Second Avenue, California Suite, Torch Song Trilogy, and uh, significant other most recently. She became a household name when she starred in the TV series Barney Miller. Some of her other TV appearances include Law and Order, Breaking Away, Suddenly Susan, Enlightened, Nurse Jackie, 30-something, and Family Ties. Some of her mini-series and TV movie credits include Roots, The Next Generation, The Odd Couple, Together Again, To Race the Wind, American Love Affair, American Love Affair and Bear foot in the park. Some of her film credits include One Potato, Two Potato, for which she won Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival, Breaking Away, for which she was a nominee for which she was nominated for an Academy Award, Judy Berlin, for which she was an Independent Spirit Award nominee, Frame of Mind, Second Best, Hercules, Private Benjamin, The Bell Jar, 30 Days. I could go on and on, but I'd rather speak to Ms. Harnick myself. Barbara Barry, your married name is Harnick, correct? Yes. But in life, did you go through life as Barbara Barry for work, Barbara Harnick for non-work, or always Barbara Barry? No, I was always Barbara Barry because uh, when I to get my equity card, there was another Barbara Berman, and you can't have two people in the union with the same name. So I had to choose a name in a minute because I had a job coming up to get my equity card. So I just took Barry because of the playwright. I just said, well, I'll do that. And that's always been my, you know, my professional name. So you grew up Barbara Berman. (laughs) Yes. And you grew up where? Corpus Christi, Texas. So is Berman a Jewish name? Yes. And were there many other Jewish families in Corpus Christi at the time? Yes, uh, because it was wartime when we moved there. I was seven when we moved, and there were many Jews who were coming down to make their fortunes. It was a naval base. I so see. There was a Reformed congregation. There was a, a an Orthodox congregation, 
and there was uh, right an in-between. So there are a lot of Jews. There are not a lot of Jews in my age group. So all my friends were all, almost all non-Jews. But there were my mother and father had many friends and many activities. It was a very active community. So when you say you moved there when you were a young girl, where did you move there from? Chicago. So why did your parents move from Chicago to Corpus Christi at the time? Well, my father, when he was in college, was in the ROTC, and he had what they used to call a bivouac. That's more, you don't understand it, but they, they would take the whole ROTC down to a place, and they took them to Corpus Christi because he was already in a naval situation, and my father remembered it very, uh, he loved it. It was so beautiful. And when the Depression came, he had to change his life. So he packed us all up in a car like the Jodes. And we moved to Texas with all our possessions on a car, on the car roof with no money, and started a new life there. My brother was 14 and I was seven. And my mother and father were, you know, they'd been married for some years, but they had a very rich life in Chicago. And all of a sudden we were, you know, poverty stricken in Texas. It was a depression. And do you have a memory of that road trip? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. First of all, my father, when he was in college, never forgot this. And he kept saying, look at the sky. Look at the cows. Look at the... There are no Texas, there are no clouds like Texas clouds. And we would stop and get out of the car and look at it. And he was just in love with Texas. And I remember it very well. I remember it very, and I remember my mother crying because she was so miserable. And And then we got there and we lived in a little shack on the beach because it was all my father could afford. And I did go to school and I did make friends immediately, which was great. And we just struggled, and finally, you know, he 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 made a living. He was a college graduate with a an English degree, and they put him to work at the radio station as an announcer because he was, you know, he had this great Bostonian voice. And he struggled back. It was everybody was in the same boat, you know. There was no money anywhere. Is that what he ended up doing? Was radio basically his life as you were growing up? Well, after he graduated, he should have been a professor, absolutely. But in those days, Jewish men didn't become professors. They became businessmen. Mm-hmm. So he got a job with an, uh, an insurance company, uh, the Equitable Life Insurance Company. When he went to Texas, he kept doing that, and he was a wonderful insurance man. But then the war came, and they needed people who were educated and who could speak on the radio and who knew what was going on. And they came after him and they, he loved it. He went to work as an announcer and a news commentator and he just loved it. But how crazy to go from selling insurance to somehow someone finding you, getting you on the radio. It's such a strange crossover. It's not the most organic linear ride, but that's what ended up happening. You're a very good questioner because (laughs) It is odd. It is odd. And, but he was so clearly, I'm sorry to say this, but he was so clearly above the crowd. 
you know, he he knew he knew music, he knew literature, hmm. he knew world affairs, he knew he knew he was a Harvard educated man. He knew right. stuff. Right. And they grabbed him because they needed people because all the other people were going off to war. Right. Right. Did your mom eventually find a place for herself as well in Corpus Christi? Yeah, she did. She became part of the Jewish, you know, women's community. And she she was very social and she uh yeah, she did. She she ended up liking it quite a lot, actually. But she did adjust. Yes, she adjusted. And she made lots of friends. She was very social. So how did theater become a part of your life? Well, you know, I don't know. I I was drafted to do a show for the Corpus Christi Little Theater. It was an old English show called Gammer Girton's Needle. And they needed a girl who looked like me or who, you know, I don't know. They came to my mother and said, does she want to do this? And I said, okay. I had no ambition to be an actress. And I did it. And I guess I, you know, I was okay. I was okay. And then things just built as I got older and I did stuff in high school. And then I really did stuff in junior college. I had a great teacher and that kind of spurred me on to doing theater all over Texas. You know, we would go as a team, but I never intended to make it a career ever because, uh, it was unrealistic in those days, you know. You 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 got married, or you became a teacher, or you you. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted. I thought I thought I would be a teacher, so I went to Texas University to major in drama education, and that's what I did for the first year. <clears throat> and what brought you to New York, where you really started off? Uh, kind of right away getting stuff to do. So so how did you get from Texas to New York? Well, I graduated for one thing. Right. I graduated right. from Texas University and I yeah. had, had an incredibly good liberal arts education. I mean, that was a great school. And my boyfriend came, my boyfriend from college, and he was right away in a Broadway play, right away. And I followed him. And I said, well, <clears throat> I guess I'll stay. And I started working in offices and stuff. I really did not pursue a career. But I worked in a theatrical office and somebody found me and somebody thought I could do it. You know, it's one of those things that just kind of happened. I was going, I really came to be with him. And we were together for a long time. And then he, I don't know, he got married and I, I started to work. Uh, it's just one of those things. I wasn't, I didn't have a burning ambition. Mm -hmm. But you had talent and luck. Those two things came a and found of, you. A yeah. Lot. And when I got here, I realized I I wasn't prepared for a professional career. Because as good as the university was, 
they did not teach a really organic way of working. So I studied with Uta Hagen, and I <clears throat> I auditioned for her, and uh, so did my boyfriend, and we both got in. And I stayed with her for over four years while I was working. I was working the whole time. Right. And she kept saying, you're too slick. You're too, you're too professional. You're too slick. You gotta, you gotta start from the beginning. But she said that to everybody in the class. Uh huh. And none of you know, really knows how to act. And in the class were um, me my boyfriend, Ann Mira, Jerry Stiller, Charles Nelson Riley, Shelley Berman, uh, oh, a lot of other people. And she said to us all, you don't know how to act. That was the first day. And she was white. Mm -hmm. I was making a living, <clears throat> but I wasn't really, I wasn't really, as my husband used to say, sending my message to the world. I didn't know how to do that. I just knew how to be very professional. And I worked a lot. I also worked on my off times. I worked in factories, by the way, and I worked in offices and I worked in restaurants. So well, many day jobs. Yeah. Many jobs. Day jobs. Yeah. Yeah. But I kept going forward. And also once I, and I got a very good agent through one of my professors in Austin, and she really pushed me. And I ended up at the uh, American Shakespeare Festival in Westport, Connecticut, where I spent two glorious years doing Shakespeare with a lot of great people. And because I had been trained in that, we were trained to do Shakespeare. We were trained to do the classics right. Austin, at Austin. Right. So... It was luck. A lot of it was luck. Incredible. I mean, I was looking at your credits and, and your first film credit, although it says uncredited, was in Giant. Yes, I had five lines or something. Who was in the scene? Uh, I don't remember. I think it was Elizabeth Taylor. And I think it was Rock Hudson. I do remember it was a funeral scene. And I said, the character says something stupid. And the director, George, what was his name? The famous director. Anyway, who? Was it George Cooker? No, 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 no. It was, I'll think of it. Anyway, okay. he said to me, the minute you say it, you wish you could put it back in your mouth. Right. Such a good direction. Yes. And I did it, and we were there. I was on that show for weeks because Rock Hudson had another engagement he had to finish, and James Dean refused to come to work, and so we used to sit around waiting for James Dean. Uh huh. And I, uh, I made a lot of money. It was my first job. I was just out of college. Just wow. Yeah, George Stevens, right? George, George Stevens. Stevens. Yes. Good girl, right. <laughs> exactly good. And he was great. Because, you know, <clears throat> the reason I got the job was they needed somebody with a Texas accent. And I was there with a boyfriend, new boyfriend, who was a very established actor. And he knew George Stevens. And he said to George Stevens, my girlfriend's from Texas. And I went to meet him. I didn't even have to audition. 
I just talked to him and he said, okay, the job is yours. So that was fun. That's incredible. And you learned about how much of making a movie is sitting around and waiting to make a movie. That's oh, sort yeah. of what it is. Um, I have to, I have to fast forward, although we're going to skip around because we seem to be in a moment where there is this, not that it ever went away, but there has just been this passion and complete obsession with Stephen Sondheim and his productions. The revival of Company, Merrily We Roll Along is on Broadway. Here we are. Um, there's just a passion happened a few years ago. Again, a revival. There's a, a show going on in London right now of his. And you are in what is one of the most iconic musical theater productions written by Stephen Sondheim called Company. And you were nominated for a Tony. And so many people know about it because of the video of the filming of your making the cast recording, the original Broadway cast recording. It's very famous. And the Elaine Stritch moment of it all. Um, I wonder, all these years later, what you can share. How did you get into that production? Was it a joyous experience, a hard experience? making something from scratch with a really beautiful company like that. What comes to mind when I, when I bring up that production? Well, first of all, we, none of us knew what we were doing. And, and I, the reason I got into it was because they were trying to cast this part. And so, we were all friends and somebody said, we need somebody like Barbara Harnick. And so Stephen said, or somebody said, why don't we get Barbara Harnick? Said, Did you oh, already I know him? Did you know oh, him before oh, yeah. this? We all knew each other. We all knew each other. So you ran with the same crowd. You were all well, friends. My, my husband was a musician and a producer. Right. And a performer, and he knew everybody. We we, yeah, we were very, all very friendly. And somebody said, oh, yeah, why don't we get her? Let's call her. And so they called, They sent me the script, actually. Hal, Hal Prince sent me the script. And he said, pick the part you want to do. And I I love the woman who did karate because I'm so physical. And I said, oh, I'd like to do that. And he said, okay, all Steve wants to do is hear you sing a song. You don't have to audition. And I got coached up the kazoo, mm -hmm. by a very famous coach named David Craig. And I went in to do the audition with a friend with whom I'd worked up the scene. And I did the, the song. And they Steve and Hal came down to the to the stage and they said, Okay, the part is yours. It's fine. And I said, but I have a scene to work. I did I have a scene. We don't have to see the scene, Barbara. The part is yours. And I said, No, no, I you gotta see the scene. So my friend Terry Kaiser and I did the scene, which ultimately was the karate scene in mm -hmm. the and they said, oh, that's really good. And I said, now I'm going to go take karate, Steve, and you're going to pay for it. <laughs> he said, what? No. I said to Hal, Hal, who's <laughs> notoriously tight. I said, I'm going, I found this teacher on Broadway. He's crazy, but he, he knows karate. And, he, and I'm going to study with him for about six or eight weeks. He said, no, no, I'm not paying for that. I said, yes, you are. I'm going to do that. And I did it, and he paid for it. That's and I incredible. brought all that work into rehearsal. 
And we, out of that work, Michael Bennett choreographed that scene. So, you know, it was like it was handed to me. But if I did it over again, I wouldn't choose that part because that part is the only part that did not have a song. Uh-huh. And I was so frustrated the whole time because I couldn't. Right. I sang in the group, but I didn't have a song. Anyway. Right. In answer to your question, at one time we were still in the rehearsal hall and I said to, I said to, uh, Hal, I said to, yeah, Hal, I said, Hal, what is this musical about? And he said, I don't have a clue. He had no idea. Uh huh. We all just kept working on these couples and it turned out it was probably about marriage. Mm-hmm. But that they didn't start out thinking that. So we fumfered around a lot. You know, we were struggling in Boston to try to find the right length of dances and who did what. And it was a struggle. It wasn't, uh, it was not joyous at all because Steve was a, uh, Hal was a very hard taskmaster. And Stephen was greatly supportive, but he only wanted to hear it if it was perfect. So mm-hmm. you couldn't sing anything for him until we had learned it. And the opening number was, my husband said, it was the hardest opening number he's ever seen. And he was a, a sight singer and a performer, but he taught it to me. Jay taught me the number. <clears throat> and it was it was hard. And, and, and you know, we were all young marrieds, middle marrieds with little kids. And we had little kids to put to bed and to feed and to... It was a very strenuous time for all of us. Not that we didn't love it. It was a great thing. But I don't even think at the time we understood how groundbreaking it was. Because if you know that, we did not get great, we did not get universal reviews. So it took a while for that show to find its own feet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it was a wonderful experience. Did it, how long did it, did it have a good run on Broadway? Well, it it did, but not as good as it should have had. It mm-hmm. was not a big hit. Mm-hmm. It ran about, I guess, nine, eight months, nine months. You were <laughs> but, nominated for a Tony. Yeah, I was, but we never sold out. And it was very controversial because people said, what is this musical about? I mean they're talking about marriage and they're talking about, you know, relationships and what is this about? Right. It It was was a new language. I mean, it it was was. a new kind of conversation. Once you were, I mean, I know that, that (laughs) you have done so many things, but once you were up and running, were you as a company, did you have some laughs once it was happening and and were you a close company or were you all? Yes. No, we all got along very well. I mean, there are always little, you know, flare-ups and stuff. Uh, but we got along very well. We were united in trying to do it right. Mm-hmm. And because the scenes were separate, each couple had a different scene, there was a sense of competition. At the end of the night, we would go up in an elevator, and I won't tell you who, but somebody used to say, well, I was very good tonight. You know, and we would say, uh, uh, good. And then the next night she would say, I was really good tonight. 
So there was a sense of competition. But, uh, you know, it, it was not an easy show to do. And they kept futzing with it. And we were asked to do some stuff that we that we said as a group, we're not going to do that. Mm. Meaning want, within the show? or yeah, would They you- wanted us to be off stage and make noises about making love. About, oh, this is so great and touch me there. And we were all married people with little children. And we said to them, we're not going to do this. Uh-huh. This isn't what you do even when you're making love. And they said, well, what would you do? We made it up. We said, oh, my God, I forgot to put a cover on the baby. Oh, my God, is the radiator still on in that room? Oh, I got to take her water. She's coughing. That's what people do. Yeah. And so they got very angry with us. But we stuck together as a group, and we said we're not going to do it. And so we didn't do it. Right. It was tawdry. You know, it was cheap. Right. And you felt like it it was beneath you. Well, it wasn't that. It was what during the scene where Donna McKechnie dances and the stewardess and Bobby are in bed. And they wanted us to voice over that it wasn't beneath us. It was unrealistic. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It was unrealistic and it was cheap to be sexy offstage. Who needs that? Yeah. It wasn't. And so as a, we, we didn't often do that. But as a group, we said, no, no, we're not doing this. So You, you had veto power. Yes. Um, what about Ladies Who Lunch? Was there an awareness at the time that this would become a song, an iconic, iconic part of musical theater history? Was there an awareness when you were doing the show what that what that would become? Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was so incredible. And the song was so incredible. There was no question it was epic making. And, you know, Elaine was a big star and a big diva. And she got her way. And, I mean, I just adored her. We, She was difficult, but we I adored her. She also adored my children, by the way. It was so That's sweet. Nice. Yeah. But anyway, yes, it was clear. That was almost like the highlight of the show. Mm-hmm. So in that in that uh, documentary of the making of the of the, the original Broadway cast recording, there's a lot of pressure on her. You describe Stephen as someone who was quite exact, right? He really wanted it to be perfect, and the pressure of recording an album. Um, and you see during that recording that she is really suffering in the recording studio to get it the way it should be. Did she feel that way nightly in the show or it was really just doing it on the day in the recording studio? That was so rough. No, I I don't want to go into it, but in the recording studio, she was less than, she was less than, what can I say? With it. Mm -hmm. She was having some problems Mm -hmm. and that's what made it so difficult for her. Mm -hmm. I was having problems. Because they only paid us $147 for 22 hours of work. And I had already been doing a lot of television. And I said to the company, we should be getting a week's salary for this. Yeah. And they wouldn't pay it. So I called the union. They came down. It was very unpleasant. They never paid us except for $147 before agents and before taxes. And Penny Baker took that film and played it all over the world. 
And that's the reason I have the dark glasses on because they wanted to interview me. And I said, I'm not being interviewed. You're not paying us. And to, to this day, Hal Prince held it against me. I mean, he did, he's dead now, but until the day he died, he held it against me. He was angry with me. That you wanted to be paired, compensated fairly. Paid. They exploited the entire cast. So that's so to this day, between the movie and the actual recording, all you made was the original $147 for the 22 hours of recording. That's right. Barbara, that is unbelievable. Well, it's what happened. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Thank God you went on to make very big movies for which you were nominated. So I watched the moment when you are in the audience, when you are nominated for Breaking Away, and I see that you have both your children with you in the audience at the Oscars. Was that a thrilling night, a harrowing night? Do you think about that night other than when you're asked about it? What's the takeaway? Well, I think about Aaron because he was so upset. He wanted me to win so badly. And I kept saying, if you see, look at it, I'm bending down to talk to him. And I say, Aaron, I'm not going to win this. Don't be upset. And he was desolate. And that's what I remember. And then at the banquet, he was so upset, he fell over into his plate. And my husband had to take him back to the hotel. It was not an easy night, believe me. (laughs) So it was really Aaron's night. At the end of the day, it was yes. his to win and his to lose. Right. On the way down, you know, they send you a limo and they had candy and they had drinks and they all this stuff for the kids. So it was very festive. I knew I wasn't going to win. Meryl Streep was in my category and she was not a supporting player. She was a leading player. What they put yeah. her in, I knew I wasn't going to win. Yeah. And I kept telling both children, don't be disappointed. It's an honor to be, you know, nominated. And, and but they, Aaron, just he really had a nervous breakdown. So anyway, that it, it was difficult. It was difficult. It must have been thrilling, though. I mean, when I think about you having sort of fallen into it, right? Like it wasn't like from the time you were young, you had your eyes set on stardom and the glitter that comes with it. I I think the idea that you have been nominated or won every category of accolade for an actress. It's an extraordinarily beautiful thing. And I think about when you say, yeah, like we were all friends, although it sounds like the record was an issue between you and Hal after that, after that show. But well, that's I mean, who you ran around with. Yeah. But the actor, we were all, the actors were all friends. Yeah. Yeah. We went through hell in Boston. They kept changing it and, and Elaine hated her costumes. We all hated our costumes. And we had to get rid of the person who did it and get somebody. Mm. It's a typical, you know, they say hell is being out of town with a musical. Well, that's exactly what it was. And I had two children in my hotel room. Can we and- talk about that? The idea, you know, your husband was, as you said, a musician and a performer and a singer and a producer. He started theater works. I mean, this incredible, incredible institution focused on bringing 
really good theater to young people. I think there was a quote, you know, not just singing vegetables, but really to expose young people to the power and beauty of theater. Um, You have, I I assume you were based in New York. Did you raise your kids in New York? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, I went out every, you know, almost every summer to do a series. I did Barney Miller. I did nine series altogether. And they, the kid, they, everybody went with me. I see. So that's and Jay, what Jay went, but Jay couldn't stay. He had to go back and forth because he was running theater works. But we got great houses with um, with uh, swimming pools and tennis courts. And we had a great, and at September, the children always said, we want to go home. Mm-hmm. We want to come back to New York because they hated being schlepped around in a car all the time. Right. And they missed their school. And so we always came home. But they grew up here. Jane, they were born in in Manhattan, both of them. And uh, they're, you know, they're East Coast kids. So who is your support system? I mean, your your IMDB page is, you know, longer than any of our CVS receipts at this point. That's the <laughs> best way I can describe it, guys. Or a hospital bill, if you see one. I mean, Barbara, your your extensive career in every lane of of possible in acting. So as you're going to be Goldie Hawn's mom in Private Benjamin or doing The Odd Couple or or Barney Miller, which was many, many episodes and and suddenly Susan for for seasons, who is like home, sort of who could you depend on to know, okay, it's really stressful being away from your kids, but that's part of your job. Who was in the apartment or your home with them when you were away? Well, first of all, Jay was a great father, a mm. great father. And secondly, we had a series of absolutely remarkable women who not only lived with us or didn't live with us, but but went to California with us. We had a woman named Ann Adams, who was my housekeeper when I was single. And she cared for the kids until they were, oh, uh, 10 or 11. Then we had another woman named Josephine Small, who was divine. And then we had, we had a couple. One I had to fire was so horrible. But most of the time, I had excellent help. And even when we went to Pittsburgh with Bill Ball, when the when Jane was just born, I found a couple there who helped me run this dreadful tenement house that we had. We were given to live in. I always lucked out, with one or two exceptions. I had somebody walked into the house who was really ghastly, mm. but Jay was always there, and he was so great. You know, for people listening. The, one of the other reasons, Harnick, not just because of Barbara and her husband, but Sheldon Harnick was your brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And Sheldon wrote uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jay's family, also super, super theatrical. Yes, they are. His mo- Their mother was a singer. They had an aunt who was a singer. Um we have a nephew, one of Jay's nephews, who was the first flute at the Metropolitan Opera for 35 years. Incredible DNA. producer of opera. Wow. His name is Michael Parlow. Everybody's musical. And and Aaron's little girl, who's 10, 
has inherited all of it. She's now decided to be an actress, but she's willing to train and she's taking lessons and she has a voice that is so incredible. The Harnick Pipes, they all sing, you know. Well, Jane doesn't sing, but everybody else sings. And it's in the DNA. It's in their genes. It's incredible. And the thing is that when I did the last show on Broadway, uh, you know, significant. They want, significant other. Yeah. They wanted me to do my bio. You have to give a bio. And they look at it. And they edit it. And I said to Aaron, my son, I said, this is so boring. It's so long. And he looked at it. And he said, Mom, nobody is interested in what you did 20 years ago. Nobody, it's too long. It's too boring. And he said, I'm going to write you your bio for this play. So this is what he wrote. He said, Barbara Barry has been nominated for an Oscar, three Emmys, and uh, a Tony. And she didn't win any of them. But she has three miraculous granddaughters, uh, Roxy, Mabel, and Lulu. That's what he wrote. And that the director, Trip Coleman, said to me, and I walked in when he said, that's the best bio I ever read in my entire life. I said, yes, my son wrote it. Because, you know, none of that matters as long as your kids are okay. And it turns out, as of just two weeks ago, that Lulu, who is an expert gymnast and she's 10, she said to her dad, I'm one, I want to be, I want to go on the stage. And she she's ready to study. She is studying. I want to, you know, get back to because the the thing you just mentioned sort of at the at the center of what's important to you is craft, right? Like right. that this young girl is already understanding like you can have all this natural talent, but there's a craft. Whatever, whatever she ends up doing, right? Oh, she wants to study, yeah. Right. So when you go back, because you are, you know, if anyone Googles you, they can also find a lot of video of you and Uta Hagen and Fritz Weaver, like talking about the work and the process and what it is. I wonder if you could just share a little with listeners, when you think back to kind of the work and things Uta taught you and that you've learned along the way, decades and decades and decades of working and putting craft to great use. What are things that you feel like, you know what, I am this age, I am still every time I go into work or I get a script, I think about this, right? To send my message out as you as you articulated so beautifully earlier on in, in, in Jay's words, but that's Yay. what you've been doing. Yeah. What? How do you begin? Well, I am as clear as a bell about it. And you're very smart to ask that question because I have realized in the past few, really almost in the past few months, because I've been doing some interviews and stuff, that what you finally come down to as an artist is you you're, you want to tell stories. You're telling stories. And the stories you tell, you hope, have a message that influences other people in whatever small way. Do you know what I mean? You were, t you were a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a star. I'm not a person who ever wanted to be a star. And Uta used to say, I used to say to her, when do you stop being nervous about performing? And she said, you stop being nervous 
when it's only the work that matters. That's a very big lesson. The work is, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter whether you, you know, whatever. But she used to give a very good tip about acting. And she used to say, before you step on the stage, think to yourself as the character, what is the last thing I do before I step on the stage in that scene? Which keeps you from just entering. Do you know what I mean? You have a life before you enter the scene. And when you and then I had another director who said, while you're playing a scene, you're gonna go somewhere else afterwards. Remember that. So that you don't play it, just play a scene, like an actor who plays a scene. So it gave me a very good ladder of of rules. And in the long run, now at my advanced age, I really in answer to your question. It's the privilege of telling stories. And my work is like I have gotten older. It has gotten so simple. All the junk has gone, you know, because in the long run, that's what you do. You reach out to an audience in some small way and you say, I hope you're getting this. But it doesn't matter. What matters to me is the work. And what matters to me is the message, as my husband used to say. It's your Barbara, if 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 you if it isn't your message to the world, don't do the part. He was always right. I I picked a couple of things that were not successful. He said, Don't do it. It's not your part. And does that answer your question? Beautifully, beautifully. I really appreciate that. I mean, it's funny, it sounds so simple, but where are you coming from and where are you going? Right? These are really um and it's harder than you think. <laughs> it's harder than you think. It is harder, but think about your own life. If you're cooking in the kitchen, you know that in a few minutes uh, you're going to go and uh, empty the garbage or somebody's going to come in the door who's coming for dinner. There's mm-hmm. always an after moment and there's yeah. a big moment. And when you, when you think about whatever you're doing right before you enter the stage, whether it's drinking a glass of water, scratching your nose, or talking to your children. It gives you a real person who's entering the stage, not just an actor who's coming on to play a scene. Right, right. I've learned from great teachers, you know. Uta was a, I must say, she was an incredible teacher, and she was a great mentor of mine. She really, she pushed me in various places. Right. And and I I just, uh, I could never get over that she was on my side. Do you know what I mean? Because she was such a formidable person or, or, or was she rougher on some people than others? Or what do you mean by that? She was rough on all of us. Right. You know, she used to say, she said to me, I did a scene from Chekhov once that she assigned, by the way. Yeah. And I said, I can't do Chekhov. I was very young. I said, I don't know how to do it. She said, I want you to do this scene, do it. So, you know, you rehearse for a week or two with an with another actor, and then you go to class. We we were on in this shabby room on Sixth Avenue. It was long before this, you know, the studio. And I did the scene, and she said to me, You're right. You cannot do uh you can't do it. You don't know how to do it. I said, 
I told you, I don't know how to do it. She said, don't do it anymore. And I didn't until very recently. You took on checkoff. Yeah, but I mean, not for years. Yeah. Now I know how to do it. I can do it with my eyes closed. But she was so smart. She said, no, you're right. You can't do it. Hmm. So I had wonderful mentors along the way. You know, I had great teachers at the university, too. Yeah, it sounds like it. What an incredible start. Yeah, acting classes, they were, were, as I told you, geared toward toward the classics. Right. But don't forget, we had, I got a degree. We we took dramatic criticism, theater history. We learned how to make costumes. You had to take an advanced art history course. I mean, I was educated in the liberal arts. And when I read this stuff going on now, people saying it's not really important, liberal arts anymore. It is very important. It's the basis of all humanity. It's how you think. Yeah. And I, I just, I really had a wonderful experience. In you the had to go back to your parents and, and sort of, you know, your father you described as like a really cultured individual. Um, did they get to see you do Broadway, be on stage, come to things no. you did in, in screenings? No. My mother came to the American Shakespeare Festival. In Westport, I was there two years, and she came every summer. Mm-hmm. I think maybe she saw company. I don't know, but my father no, because my father died when I was fifteen, oh. and he didn't get to see me do anything. Wow! But it was him through him that I love. I'm insane about classical music because he was, hmm. and after dinner. A lot of the times he used to make my brother and me sit down and read a Shakespeare scene. He was imbued with the English language and music. And he spoke Yiddish and he spoke French and he spoke Latin. I mean, he was incredible. And I didn't really appreciate it. You don't appreciate your parents when you're that young. Right. Well, nor did you ever think, I mean, that's very young to lose a parent. That's not how the story is supposed to go. So. We don't know. We never know about time in that way. What a legacy. What a legacy. You've done the Bermans proud, for sure. You have a beautiful family, and I can really tell that somehow you were able to hold space for career and family and make it work, which is really hard for for anyone in any career, but especially. And I made some mistakes along the way, but you know, you Oh, hello. Before I let you go, is there, before I let you go, you know, this is the Little Known Facts podcast. Is there Mm -hmm. a little known fact about Barbara Berman Barry Harnick that you can share with my listeners? About my life or about anything, anything, any little known fact about you? Well, it's not all that interesting, I don't think, but... Uh, two things I can tell you. When I met my husband at a backers audition in New York, right on Central Park West, mm-hmm. you know we had both gone to hear the hear it. They were raising money. You know how we know what a backers audition. Sure. Is. And I had just graduated college, and he was there, but he wasn't performing. And I took one look at him and fell hopelessly in love. Hopelessly. One look. Are you there? 
I am. And to make a long story short, we we never dated. We were friends. But 12 years later, we got married. It was the the motivating force of my life because I had never felt like that before. I mean, one, I felt my knees buckle. Wow. And uh, so that was that. And the other thing I was going to, there was one other thing I was going to tell you. The, the, The highlight of my acting life was I did Twelfth Night in the Park. And I played Viola, which is the greatest part in Shakespeare for a young woman ever written. And I played Viola in the Park. Joe Papp directed it. And I found du- during that during that run how you find your inner life and how you you get your message across to the audience with barely doing anything. Do you know what I mean? It was a huge discovery. Mm-hmm. And that was the highlight of my acting life. Wow. That's incredible. Well, this is a highlight of my podcasting life. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I am so honored and thrilled. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You too, thank you. Feel well. Thank you, love. I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what it's called? Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure, but if you want to, no donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening, but if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.